Thank you, Chris, uh, for inviting me up here to talk and, and for the introduction. Um, our practice, as Chris mentioned, was established 2000 um, behind the win on the TKTS competition. Uh, it's, it's grown rather slowly, slower than we imagined when we started off, uh, and we're now a practice of 15 uh, practicing from, from Sydney. There's three directors, uh, Ty Rapia, who I did the TKTS competition with, and Stephen Figuera, who uh, Ty and I have known for 16 years, so it's a very sort of tight-knit um, group uh, working with uh, uh, now a great team of uh, talented architects who are exceptional talents on their own. Um, I'd like to uh, start by taking on a journey about architecture, people and world. To me, there's something quite magical about design. You know, at the core of it, we take matter out of the ground and recombine them to incredibly complex and beautiful things such as the building that we're in today. It's like alchemy, creating something from nothing. And what is it that architects create? Is it buildings, cities, experiences, economies, brands, cultures? By default, language separates, but for me, everything comes under one universal design space and one universal story. Earth is a closed loop system. It receives a constant amount of energy from the sun. It contains constant amount of matter. Nothing escapes. Matter is simply reshaped and reconfigured. In this framing, the built environment can be seen as a continual resurfacing of the ground, shaped by the evolving needs and desires of people. Architecture is a temporal permanence in the flow of matter, energy and ideas. This equation by Buckminster Fuller is very revealing. He says wealth equals matter times energy times knowledge. What's amazing about this equation is that matter and energy are constant. The only variable that converts matter and energy to a more productive state is knowledge. By wealth, I mean both qualitative values, uh, quantitative values, the needs of people, and qualitative values, the desires of people. This isn't just limited to utilitarian benefits, but includes cultural things such as music and art. The accrual of knowledge expands humanity's access to the measurable things that we need to live and the immeasurable things that we live for. Collectively, wealth can be seen as the earth carrying capacity for life. This is a graph of world's population. You've got a horizontal axis there, which sort of is a time one from, uh, from the 5000 BC to 2000 AD and population on the vertical axis. As you can imagine, in the early days, our capacity to reconfigure our environment is very limited, really to making simple tools to hunt and appropriating caves to live in. Hence, population was limited to where there was food, water, and temperate thermal conditions. The life that so many millions take for granted today is radically different from those earlier days. This is GDP indexed to inflation per capita, a very rudimentary graph of the wealth described earlier per person. 
The truly incredible thing about this graph, as this has occurred concurrent to the explosion of population seen in the previous graph. If one looks at the life of an average middle class citizen, the food we eat, the places we live and work, our education, entertainment and travel patterns, it's a life that only kings and queens could afford only a few generations ago. We effectively have a billion kings and queens roaming around the planet. Um, how did this happen? Some say discovery of oil, but this is only part of the truth, I believe. A clue is to look at industry sector variation over time. So you have in the dark colour the primary sector, in the mid-grey the secondary sector, in the, in the lighter grey tertiary sector. Primary sector is part of our economy making direct use of natural resources, agriculture, forestry and mining. Secondary sector is manufacturing, taking those raw materials and making physical goods. Tertiary sector is a soft part of our economy, activities where knowledge is used to improve productivity, performance and imagine new possibilities. It also includes intangible goods such as entertainment, culture and education. You can see here, off to the left there, really in the early days most of our lives were involved collecting food, a little bit of time in making tools and perhaps a tiny little bit of time organising ourselves. It really contrasts heavily to what you can see on that right hand side where only a small portion of our population is involved in primary industries and an increasing number of us are involved in knowledge production. And when you combine all those three graphs there's a powerful pattern which shows Bucky's equation playing out over time. This pattern illustrates the evolutionary tra trajectory of humanity. And to give you a sort of visual on this, I'm going to do a kind of a rapid fast-forward play of the last two million years. <laughs> it will form a backdrop as a backdrop to this um, sort of view between sort of people, the built environment, uh, people architecture and the world. So we've got 2,600,000 BC stone tools, 200,000 BC Homo sapien, reasoning, introspection, 100,000 BC spoken language, 7,000 BC agriculture, 4,000 BC city-state, 3,600 BC writing, really critical to knowledge transfer beyond oral means, 3,000 BC trade. You can see in this print the close relationship between people, culture and the built environment. Agriculture in the foreground showing rudimentary infrastructure containing water and pathways. Animals that are raised rather than hunted in the middle. Reliable food supply affords this society to expand the constructed world to better serve them. The group of men sort of show, showing at the top of the picture perhaps build more, more structures such as one of those storage sheds to keep the food off the ground. 800 BC, early infrastructure, 500 BC, democracy, 400, Silk Road, East-West Exchange. 1400, Renaissance, 1440, Gutenberg Printing Press, 1650, Enlightenment, 1700, Scientific, scientific Revolution. 1800, Industrial Revolution, Agriculture, Manufacturing, Mining, Transportation, 1900, The Aeroplane, 1936, The Turing Computer, 1990, World Wide Web. The built environment is inseparable from culture, economy and technology. And equally, what shapes our experience of the world is multi-layered, multi -layered, much more than the physical dimensions. To me, design is like uh, trying to thread a needle through a maze of different fields. It's like acupuncture, trying to pass through obstacles, energise key layers of itself and also interrelated effects between those layers.
I see design as an act of reshaping the flow of matter, energy and ideas to a more productive state. So how does this relate to practice? Practice as we find ourselves in architecture today. A common strategy that our practice does is to really look at architecture in a more expanded manner. To look beyond the immediate brief that's given to us and to position the, the project or the design sort of uh, design ambition of that um, task in a much sort of bigger context. And in doing so, design becomes an expansive mode of inquiry to use the project to shift the design context to a higher state. So this project, which is a TKTS project, uh, began in 1999 uh, with an international competition to redesign essentially that ticket booth in the middle of Times Square in New York. The competition brief really are simply to redesign the booth. It's a, it was an architectural brief, but really what we saw was an opportunity to bring a much bigger ambition to the process and thus reframed it as an urban design project. So rather than asking what kind of booth can we make, we asked what can this project be for New York and Times Square. Our first observation was that the dominant urban experience of Manhattan is that of the street grid. When the grid relents, it is typically a park. Times Square is a rare condition where the grid opens to create an urban room. Thus, we felt uneasy about placing a building-like form in this space, as even a small structure would block sight lines and undermine the distinct spatial character of Times Square. Our second observation was that it was a place experienced from the periphery. Even though Times Square is one of the you know, best-known locations in the world, really there was simply nowhere for people to actually enjoy being there, even to take a kind of Kodak moment of sense of arrival of being there. So for us, it was very much like a theatre without seats, a great sort of known destination, but really have no facility to actually um, take a palpable uh, experience of, of actually being there. From these observations, we used the project, the Booth project, to invert the existing condition and create a centre and a destination where both locals and visitors can pause, sit and enjoy what's on offer. To do this, we propose a series of red translucent steps to form an inclined public space with a booth house underneath. The terrace structure also forms a respectful backdrop to the nearby statue of Father Duffy. In order to give the gesture further potency, the tiered seating is lit from below, causing the whole structure to glow and strengthen the presence of the booth in the visually charged context. It's a project that cuts across boundaries, urban design, architecture and set design. The concept expanded the focus of the project and ultimately led to a complete reconsideration of the plaza and examination of how that project can energise um, all of Times Square. It's recalibrated how people use and understand the place. It's gone from a place that operates from the edges to now a centre outwards. As you can see, the, the concept is very simple. One of, one of the other things that we tend to gravitate towards in the practice is try to find solutions that um, perhaps um, achieve multiple sort of um, functions, ambitions and readings. So for us, it, it started off as this simple gesture, just trying to create an unbuilding-like form. So that was the sort of primary purpose. But as we it quickly start, we started to realise, well, maybe these can be red steps 
because there's some reference to theatre, etc. The more we started to think about the project, there were these double, double uh, meaning that it could take in, in the sense that on the one hand, it's, it's a fairly grounded, calm thing, but, but another, in, on another hand, it's, it's a bit like a magic carpet that puts you up and lifts you up and be part of the energy of the place. One of the sort of nicest things that we found um, after it opened was people approaching the steps and doing a little bit of a tap dance as they arrived onto the steps, as if they kind of arrived, you know, in the, on, on the centre stage of the world. So this sort of notion that it acts psychologically as a stage, but also the seats to what's a great kind of amphitheatre space, of, of, of urban space of its own. This is a favourite favourite photo of ours, just showing people using it like a public lounge. Um, <clears throat> so just bringing it back to some of the points here, you know, I think if, we, if this was a normal commission project and we sort of entered the room to the first presentation to the clients and said, well, you know, we're not really interested in your ticket booth. <laughs> we're not interested in sale of tickets at all, actually. We just kind of want to ponder what this project might mean for Times Square as a place and perhaps sort of even broader than that you know, we would have been shown the door. So, um, and in fact, even after we won the competition, um, you know, it's such a heavily loaded side with such varying number of stakeholders with, with varying interests. So you have, you have the, the Broadway ticket group that organised the competition, obviously very interested in maintaining their ticketing function and the legibility of that for their ticket sales. You have uh, the business owners that are very interested in, um, I guess it's, potential sort of branding and symbolic value, but, um, but what we found out after, very, very sensitive to sight lines, to their signs, you know, their signs bring, up, bring in more revenue than the, the rent inside a building in Times Square. Um, and then we have this commemorative group, Father um, Duffy here, this, that's, which that statue relates to, uh, has been there before any of these activities happened. You know, the, the ticket booths, the temporary one was set up 25 years. Uh, well now, uh, 37 years ago, before, um, just to sort of sell halfway, uh, half price tickets to boost Broadway um, theatre sales. Um, but, you know, the, the, the group and the namesake of this little part of Times Square really belongs to um, uh, Father Duffy's um, legacy. Anyway, they, they were such strong sort of advocates because the previous booth had such sort of poor relationship to the statue, they actually had started to a campaign to have the booth removed from the place completely. This is sort of parallel to the competition process. Once the competition process started, they started rallying. Fortunately uh, for us, when the competition results were announced and they saw our scheme, they really saw how the scheme can be really compatible to their agenda as well. So they became one of the sort of strongest advocates, essentially saying, well, either this gets built or nothing, else, nothing will ever get built in this location. But um, what I want to sort of explain is that, and, you know, during, even during after the competition and the design is out there, most of the stakeholders are primarily looking at it from their own um, individual perspective. And one of the nice things about this project was when it's all finished and done, when you talk to them, all they talk about is urban transformation. Every one of them is an urban transformation <laughs> expert. And um, it's, a, it's a lovely thing to happen where, you know, you can introduce a bigger ambition to a project and ultimately that is what engages them uh, as people and as sort of contributors in, in the change in the built environment.
So it, it opened um, before the uh, pedestrianisation of Broadway and um, it, was, uh, it, it was just serendipity um, that the incoming, because the project spanned eight years, it spanned Giuliani's era when, it, when the competition was run and Bloomberg's um, era um, upon construction. And um, that, during, the Bloom, during the construction, obviously there were Bloomberg administration were looking to humanise and pedestrianise a lot of the city and, and Broadway being one of them. And um, it was just serendipity, the booth really helped um, shift people's minds um, which, um, which sort of helped along this broader ambition to, um, I guess, balance the, uh, balance the impact of cars as well as pedestrians in those spaces. It's, it's also been successful as a branding device, uh, not only for TKTS, but for Times Square in New York. Um, the other thing that we, we often do in the practice is really look at um, how different aspects of our built environment evolves over time. And we find that when you look at the built environment from that evolutionary perspective, sometimes you can see there's gaps between the sort of norms of the built environment that we have today and the, and, the, and the cultural, social, economic, kind of technological conditions um, that are today. So there's a sort of culture shifts, but the built environment hasn't, hasn't caught up. <laughs> um, and cemeteries are definitely ones that we believe there's, a, uh, there's a quite a lag. Um, it's a typology that has existed for a long time, and it's increasingly out of sync of how people want to mark the passing of their loved ones and uh, celebrate their past life. Um, and it's a project we're working together with landscape architects McGregor Coxall. Um, on this one, we're both architects and project partners on the venture, which really looks to reinvent and modernise rem remembrance. The inaugural project here in Sydney, not here, but in Sydney, uh, is set in a natural bush setting with in the intense activities uh, just isolated to the middle of the site, which is the rectangle you see in the middle uh, there. So these are some photos of the site. It's a fairly um, untouched part of the Cumberland Plain. Um, there are native vegetations, um, almost sort of semi-rainforest-like because there's quite a bit of um, established landscape, which means uh, established trees, which means there's um, in the valleys, um, it gets, you get sort of stratification of the ecosystem and um, you get quite big differences between where um, there's the sort of the, where the light is getting in, um, light is not getting in and, and the light is getting in. I mean, we love walls, but this is a very big one. The central walled area is 200 metres by 100 metres and it's about four to seven metres in height. So um, the, the, the master plan um, originally was conceived primarily from an environmental perspective in trying to use the cemetery project as a way to retain the ecosystem that's there and the, uh, um, and the vegetation. Um, when we sort of um, came into the picture, we were really excited about this sort of, um, this, this whole typology and um, the fact that we can, we can have a go at reimagining 
you know, different way how one might sort of remember uh, past ones. Um, the journey starts from the car park, which is at the front of the site, and you go along uh, a, a boardwalk, which lifts above the ground, and goes through the forest. Again, through that forest, it's fairly dark. Um, these renders don't really quite pick it, but um, you're going through a fairly intense vegetation. And then when you, you sort of approach it, you'll see this very long walled enclosure, um, ruinesque, I guess, in, in the middle, um, made out of gabion walls. And then you go through this um, passageway. And then when you open out in the middle, uh, the, the, the light changes because it's one area we will clear out and we'll revegetate with exotics. So the, the, the sense of the place will shift at that point. The, um, the chapel is an open uh, chapel. Um, and the design for the subspaces within the chapel is created as a series of nested spaces, I guess. So there's, um, you go into that large wall space and then you have courtyard spaces that you see and then you have another courtyard spaces that you discover. So there's a series of layering within that. Um, the chapel that you see in the bottom right, uh, bottom left there is, is an open pavilion and then there are a series of um, blocks, um, programs being um, created with blocks to kind of um, to create, um, I, I guess, a, a spatial experience that's more like a maze as you discover other layers to um, the, the, the program that's uh, within the different functions that are within this, uh, this centre. This is um, out in the landscape. And so the burial just takes place in the natural setting. There's a very small marker that's placed um, so that one can come back and find one's loved ones. Um, and during this process, because part of the site, uh, part of the, the brief was to look at, well, how we, um, how we tackle ash interments. Cremation as a, um, as a choice has overtaken burials but there's really very little ritualistic, experiential and spatial infrastructure to support this. So um, we haven't started tackling this in, in whole heart, but this is sort of another huge design area we're really excited over because in a sense there's even, there isn't, there's very little typology that's out there that, that um, matches probably the desires of people out there. Other times, typologically speaking, it's more questioning, I guess, the trajectory that um, evolution has taken. So this is a, a Narraveen house. Um, it's, it sits alongside the Narraveen Lagoon. Um, the big lake lagoon is to the bottom of the page. You can kind of see just sort of one arc of that at the bottom of the picture there. But um, within the streets itself, you have a very um, typical suburban um, pattern. So to give you a picture of what the street looks like, that's a Google Street View. You know, very undistinguished, even though the, the lagoons and the water edge is um, quite beautiful, you really have no, <laughs> no idea of any of that from, uh, from the street. This was the existing home. Uh, it was a single frontage home sort of two-story home, but like a lot of people, they needed, um, they needed more rooms for their growing family, um, larger living rooms, um, and a home office. 
and also a double garage. Um, and when we looked at other projects in the, air, in the area, um, you know, we just started to reflect on how the suburban model has, has evolved over time. And it's, it, it, to us, it felt like what started off as this idea of retreating away from the city to, um, to have sort of best of country life and city life in suburbia has really sort of um, settled on you know, the, the image of a homestead in a kind of garden-esque city rather than the actual lifestyle it offers. So Ebenezer's house of the town-city concept, best of town and country combined, and, and then this is where we are today. <laughs> um, so it, in, that, in that context, uh, I guess the sort of things that were, um, that were in our heads was, you know, can the suburban ideal be more than the image of the homestead? Can the idea of retreat be strengthened? Can we reassert the presence of nature? So we're really looking to uh, imagine a design that um, perhaps changes um, from one that's focused on the object of the house to a more experiential model. Uh, conception of the house. Um, the plan here um, with the upper level um, uh, um, foot placed off the side here. The, the house, um, probably the most distinct feature of the house is the courtyard in the middle and the way that you enter into the house. The, the, the entry is on the top of that, um, top of that plan along a small passageway um, which starts to sort of pull you away from the context you come from and then draw you into the house. The courtyard also organises all the um, social program of the house, so the home office, the dining areas, the, the living areas, the pool. It was also in a flood zone and that's why we had to, in, in the end, rather than uh, do a renovation to the current house, uh, eventually had to, uh, um, to pull down the house because the even though it's a courtyard typology, it had to be all 1,200 above, uh, above the natural ground level. So you can see the sections, uh, quite a mute ex expression to the building. And here you can see along, along the street, it's very, it's, it doesn't give much away of what sort of contains within. <laughs> take you through the house, approaching in. So when you get to the end of this passageway, it's a solid door, but when you open the door, you have the courtyard and you can kind of see the full breadth of the common functions around, around the house. So this is a, it was a sort of a process, um, I guess removing uh, the sense of what's, where you come from and then placing you into a much more uh, controlled environment where all the view lines to the sky as well as the view beyond is, is controlled by the box. Hence, hence the box itself is fairly mute to the outside and, and, and uh, the experience and the outlook is privileged from, from within through a series of framed views. So that's the view from the home office. Um, he was a very busy client. He spent a lot of time working on his business from home and it was a strong desire to be able to at least sort of observe and um, if kids want to come by and sort of interrupt and do things that, that they can. Um, so we sort of put the home office in 
uh, almost like you know command central location, <laughs> so they can observe all the things going on. In fact, upstairs above here is uh, their study bench as well, uh, with the veterans being upstairs looking down into this courtyard. Um, that's um, it shifts during the day in terms of the light quality. So this is when the sun um, in the afternoon, when the sun's hitting um, in the view beyond. It's the view from the back. The little fragments of the views, some internal shots, and the pool which spreads into that courtyard. And another shot. Okay, um, the other things that we've been interested in, um, more as an accident um, through this. Um, through this project, it's a, it's it's the Port Botany Lookout, and it was a project um, which we were about sort of four layers down, maybe five layers down in in our relationship to the client. If there is even there was not really one client, but um, you, you can see here there's a mass. It's part of a massive Port Botany expansion project. Um, which is expanding the container terminals in Botany Bay uh, to accommodate uh, more, um, more ships to come in and uh, deliver the containers um, to, to Sydney. And as, as part of the, um, a, a goodwill gesture, I guess, as part of the development, there was a small linear park, tiny linear park. Um, you can see the wiggly lines on, between the runway in that corner there. Um, which was the, the public component of the whole development deal. And then our two little pieces were a toilet block and a lookout, <laughs> which is sort of subspaces within that. Um, so, uh, so you can see here, the, the two things were located on either end of this linear, um, linear park. Uh, one, the lookout near uh, the runway to the left there, and then uh, some amenities to the right here. And, and one of the things um, we found, the thing that we found fascinating, we learned through this process was um, because we were so distant from the client and we were also so distant in the way that the project got delivered, um, we really had no idea of how much skills or how the project will actually even get built or who's in control or how we might have some input through it. Um, we were asked to do the lookout as a, a design and construct set of drawings, a performance-based drawings, and we were asked to do a fully documented um, drawings for the amenities. In the end, what happened was that because the Port Bonnie expansion is such an infrastructure project, you had an infrastructure builder, essentially builders who were building <laughs> um, bridges and you know, massive um, marine uh, reclamation projects, and they were the head consultant managing this tiny little park and these two little structures. And what we found was because they had no interest in, in the outcome of it, um, the, even though we spend a lot of time documenting this amenities block, when you actually get up close, you know, most of the qualities that, that you could have had is, is missing from there. But what was fascinating was we actually got quite a, a good outcome out of this lookout, um, just serendipity. Um, because in the end, it was just one contractor, a steel contractor, um, Fleetwood, and there were uh, very good steel fabricators. And even though we had done a whole series of 
drawings um, to the tender, in the end, they essentially brought their, what they sort of had mocked up as 3D DWG model. We just had a SketchUp model of this. They came to Alphas, we just compared the two models, shifted it to, um, to get it to a point where we were happy with what their model showed. And in the end, they just took that model back to their uh, workshop and they had a, a program which would um, work out all the tolerances, all the sort of um, welding joints they require, all the sheet sizes, optimization of cuts, uh, the modules they need to do, fully fabricated from the workshop and then dropped in and it just kind of came together beautifully. <laughs> um, and what we learned out of the process was that, um, you know, contracts and how we might imagine the, the tools and the methods of delivery can be, um, you know, it, it can be a really effective tool when, um, to be part of, I guess, the design thinking um, early on in the design process. So uh, on other projects where we find ourselves in similar circumstance, where we are unsure, or where we feel there's a sort of a geometry um, and the sort of uh, complexity of form that we want to do, but we want to have more confidence on the way that it gets delivered. More and more, we're starting to take on um, some of these um, methods, even though it's not something that's a core driver of certainly our practice. So this is it there. Commercial and public value. So, um, you know, sort of in the intro, I was trying to map out a view of architecture or view of design really in essence um, about uh, through the different way one might structure different kinds of relationships, you create new kind of values and new kind of possibilities. And um, City of Sydney has an interesting situation where um, any project over $50 million or over 1,500 um, square metres of site area has to run through a design competition process. It's a pretty radical policy because it applies to private land, um, not just public assets. So um, you have a condition where, you know, as a private owner, you can't even select your own architect or your own design that you, you like. It, it, they see the, the, in, in that urban condition and projects of that scale having such impact into the public realm that they would like to see, they, they uh, uh, require it to be tested through a competition process. Um, uh, on benefit to the developer, um, they uh, get 10% additional floor space, which is significant amount of value, um, or 10% in additional height. But what's, I think, is even more interesting about the way that that is set up is that um, really, at the end of the day, the game gets set up where you, you have to compete on the design itself. You know, at the end of the day, you have equal number of jurors selected by the private owner, the commercial owner, and they're wanting to see the best commercial value of the ideas that are placed on the table. And there's jurors selected by the, uh, the council who want to see, obviously, the best public outcome. So it's a sort of a situation, I think competitions are really interesting situations where you're given the same set of brief, same sort of um, uh, constraints, and you know, how do you imagine that in a way that can generate more value? Um, 
on this project, um, it was a very difficult um, project. It's located uh, in the block. You can, it's on Macquarie Street, near Circular Quay. It's in the block of low rises in the middle of that image there. And um, it's, it's replacing, uh, it's replacing, if you can see my finger there, you'll be able to see a little bit better in the next slide. I won't try to reach up and jump up and touch it. Um, it's, it was a challenging context because it had such a wide range of urban forms in the context. So the planning controls were set by the predominant character of Macquarie Street, which is a street wall typology of roughly sort of seven to 10 metres. But within the block that we set in was a series of much lower scale buildings and built heritage buildings and heritage buildings in the round in that there weren't infill developments, all four facades contributed to its sort of architecture. And then sort of to place it amongst that, just one block back, you start to get much taller towers that are sitting in the context. Um, and here's another image of that uh, in the picture, and you can see more clearly the subject site. And that's um, the, the character of the heritage building surrounding our site. Currently fairly run down, um, quite dominated by service requirements rather than any uh, pedestrian activity. And so we have uh, potential for some beautiful heritage setting, but fairly neglected. But then from other perspectives, quite gigantic scale elements from the key apartments, the Carl Expressway and the AMP Tower. So the proposal here, um, you can see, is the um, faceted uh, bronze tower sitting next to the sandstone transport house there. Um, the strategy is, is Probably best understood, we did a series of moves below that datum of roughly sort of four or five storeys. They're really heavily related to the condition um, in the public domain on the ground plane. And then there was a different set of moves occurring above that that really looked at maximising value um, for the client. And we try to use both of those forces to create uh, a kind of architectural expression, spatial ideas and a whole lot of other ideas that we wanted to bring to the project, but it's really underpinned by trying to um, create value on, on those two levels. Nighttime image, image from Botanic Gardens. So if we sort of swing around to the North Albert Street here, you can see um, how the form of the tower is really um, modelled by its condition. There's a data mine that's set um, um, which sort of can frame the heritage buildings uh, in the round, as well as sort of match the, the datums of the, the forms around it. It really looks to uh, be kind of like a pinwheel where it's collecting uh, these smaller items and creating an ensemble around that tower. So Macquarie Street, um, respecting the predominant height there and the rhythm of Transport House, which is the building to the left, a beautiful um, sandstone building with bronze um, inlay uh, detail, facade details between those double columns. So this is the, the ground plan. So um, to orientate yourself, Circular Quay is uh, north is to this side, to the right side. Circular Quay is to the top of the page. Macquarie Street runs down here. 
what we try to do in locating the lobby and the movement patterns is to create a, a context which really makes the most of what's surrounding it. So the, the primary um, public address to the development is on Macquarie Street um, and there's a double height colonnade, uh, double height uh, lobby space that enters into the main lobby which is a five-storey void that cuts um, north-south across the plan. And so the entry experience is much about borrowing from the qualities of the buildings uh, adjacent to it, to the transport house. And then when you get into that five-storey void, it is really um, as much about framing those views um, to the transport house facade, but also this, the corner of this building, as well as the view out, um, sort of suggesting uh, the opening out to Circular Quay. It also forms um, uh, smaller micro finer grain spaces. There's a little square that's formed with a boutique commercial. Um, the program to the north is thought of some sort of activator or a visual activator kind of program we hope to find, uh, such as a gallery. Um, and um, to, to, to collect uh, a set of, to conceive that ground plane experience much more like part of the public domain rather than in essence sort of entering into a lobby of a you know exclusive expensive um, apartment block and we really uh, look to the, the texture and the, the materiality of the the lobby and the um, and the ground plane we conceive it to be no different to the public space outside and really borrowing off the, t um, the character that's already within that setting so the tower itself is a sort of a bronze unit that sleeves over that um, lobby space. You can see this is the cross section here, which is a bit easier to understand the spatial character of it. So um, uh, predominantly natural material, bricks and stones um, will be used. Um, you can see that facade of transport house to the left there and the way that you enter from Macquarie Street and you come into a fairly dramatic five-storey space which also kind of frames views, um, a vertical kind of view slot back to Transport House, but as well as to the north, to this uh, courtyard and, and the other heritage building. It's the view of the courtyard. Um, and there's an existing, uh, from that small L-shaped building uh, off the courtyard, there's an existing heritage here that we're re reintroducing to use as a shortcut to Circular Quay. So all of these, um, you know, um, circulations, we're really interested in how circulation can be manipulated to start to activate and give energy to different parts of the site. So on the, on the developer side, um, um, we, we um, use the metaphor of hats a lot in our offers. Um, you know, we try to wear the hat from the developer side, from the marketer side, from the builder side, etc., and see from that perspective um, what insights might be gained. Um, here, we, you know, we looked a lot from all those perspectives, but one of the things that we came to um, as an interesting situation is that the, the top one, um, if you can imagine as a generic equation where 50%, 30% might be the, the site cost, 50% might be the construction cost, you sell 100%, you make 20%. <laughs> um, often there's quite a bit of pressure to save on construction cost as a way to drive increase in profit. But what became really fascinating was that um, even a small increase in sales price um, to the same sort of cost of construction can have a much greater impact on your return on investment. 
Um, so a 10% increase in sales price can effectively a 50% increase in profitability of the, of the development. So we, we rang around, we had colleagues advising, so we were asking, well, you know, what are some sort of core drivers to sales price? Um, you know, is it, is it north facing, south facing? Is it, uh, you know, wider frontages, narrow frontages, you know, uh, cross ventilation? Um, we didn't get much joy out of that discussion. It, it generally tended to be views about what sold um, most recently successfully rather than um, there being any kind of um, more, I guess, rigour to, to the, uh, their views. Uh, and what we found, interestingly, we did an analysis of a development that that developer had done nearby, which had harbour views as well. And what we found was if you look at the square metre rates around, um, they're pretty much the same whether you're facing west, east or north, south. Um, the, this is located where Harbour Bridge is um, off to the right here. And both of those front apartments have some kind of views to the, to the, to the harbour. The one to the top has a western, sort of northwestern view. The one to the, the bottom here, on the bottom right, has a north-westly uh, view between some buildings, but you can also obviously get that um, view to, to the northwest as well. But the one that's more optimally orientated to the view, it was getting 30% more sales value per square metre. And as the apartments got bigger, it was getting more. So what what started to dawn on, dawn on us was perhaps sort of views can be a key driver at, at driving um, commercial value um, and concurrently a real driver in us having a reason to give building more expression than just um, maximising the envelope, planning envelope that's been given to us. So on the one hand the site seems like well you know you've got views galore on Macquarie Street but when we looked in detail um, the views were fairly um, finely tuned in that, you know, you have situations where the best view of the Opera House is actually on the back, southern back corner of it because you have this other amateur development that cuts the view line to it. And the, probably the thing that we found most fascinating was that that view corridor that you see uh, to the bottom right um, is a northeasterly view that really had a different kind of view to the straight easterly or the sort of south um, southeasterly view. So this is a view, the, uh, the premier, I guess, unobstructed view to the northeast. It encompasses Sydney Harbour out to the heads and has the botanic gardens in the in the foreground. Um, but quickly, as you rotate more straight east um, and a little bit south. You, the view changes in that the, the botanic gardens become a slimmer portion of your view line. There's more uh, the road network, the Carl Expressway sits in the foreground and you have the urban conurbation beyond and you don't obviously get that um, view of the water in this thing. I mean in most developments this will be a fantastic, this has been exaggerated, this is actually a quite a nice view but compared to the northeast view it's definitely uh, you know, a second rate view. So, and then there are the glimpse views as you rotate around the site. So we started to think about, well, how can we make this work for, for uh, conceiving the architecture? And conventionally you have your balconies on the, on, in front of your living areas. So first thing we thought, well, let's move it to adjacent to it. And then we started to think, well, what if we actually had every apartment more optimised to the view angles? 
So the general layout um, ends up um, like this, where you have a very broad frontage to that view. Um, uh, in, in the bigger three-bedroom ones, we're talking, you know, 14 metre widths um, to the view. And what it also does is it compresses that, the, the proportion of that space, so um, you're much closer in that view rather than sort of buried within the plan. Uh, the bedrooms have a more, um, uh, they sit behind uh, a more dense set of mullions. And then the other service areas are used to uh, essentially uh, mediate the geometry that this um, kind of plan uh, creates. So it's a view from the kitchen area. And uh, it's a penthouse, uh, the common pool that we did have in the previous DO. Um, the other hat we sort of were looking at was, well, you know, this is before we had a sort of an idea of, I guess, what the building might look like. We sort of had some idea of the way that we might give shape to the building, but we really were, you know, still scratch scratching our heads to imagine what this building could be. The only strong thing that we had a feeling for was we really didn't want to have um, sliding door sets and, and glass balustrades be the dominant expression, particularly in Sydney. It's a it's something that, um, that almost, you know, so many apartments, just by the nature of it, is, it defines the sort of look of the building. And we felt that particularly in Macquarie Street, where you have a much civic presence, um, we really want to give um, privilege to the building as an identity, um, I guess, over the, you know, the conventions of what an apartment kind of looks like. And we, uh, maybe because of our New York background, but we really felt like there were some similarities between Central, Central Park and, um, and the buildings that are adjacent to it. Um, you know, classic buildings in, in Manhattan, such as the Empire State Building. Um, but there are other more modern buildings in that, in that town, I guess, such as the Seagram and even the, uh, the more modern heads of the mural and Bond Building were on our mind. Local precedence is an Astor building, which is down the street, um, A&P, the transport house next to it helped us sort of think about materiality and, and um, palette, colour palette, sort of bronze and green hues, uh, seemed to complement the, the tones of the heritage area. So what we came to was an idea about this, um, because we were essentially creating an architecture that was doing a lot of gymnastics. You know, we were trying to do a whole lot of gymnastics on the ground level to create those um, micro experiences on the ground plane, and we're doing a whole lot of gymnastics at the top to, uh, uh, to optimise to those views. We, um, we gravitated to a more singular idea about the facade, and then something that can have finer tune within that to give expression to the building. Something that um, to us could, could sort of look, um, uh, you know, at the same time fairly classic, but um, contemporary at the same time. One of the few things that when we were wearing the different hats um, that we um, carried through from talking to uh, builders, the contractors, so one of the things we did, it's a very difficult site for access for construction. It's um, in a heritage area, it's, it doesn't have much street access, it's landlocked by the heritage building on the corner. We thought, well, let's wear the hat. Let's, you know, what, if you had to wear the hat, Build, build, and it's got an existing basement you have to keep. <laughs> so there's only certain places the core can go. So with all those constraints, 
if you sort of talk to a builder and say, well, what would be the easiest way to build on this site? If you sort of approach it from practicality and construction, what would it be? You know, we had lots of discussions, but in the end, the kind of forms and the kind of way that um, you could build that optimizes for that purpose, um, really, uh, the benefits of that did, um, really didn't outweigh um, you know, maximising all the other benefits that you could perhaps conceive. The only thing we did carry through was that uh, they explain any um, project over 12 storeys generally is done in a jump form. So it's where the concrete is poured and the facade systems are more lightweight, like a commercial office building, and they can chase at the same um, pace as the as a core construction, which allows them to finish the project uh, quicker and be more effective. So. Um, we start to conceive the whole, uh, even though it's a residential building, conceive all the operable windows, all the sort of um, balustrading and balcony and all of these elements as something that can be done as a curtain wall sort of system. And that's sort of carried through and, um, and uh, it's been quite you know, good to, uh, to have that advice and have, uh, to conceive of the residential construction in a slightly different way. So it's the facade. Some prototypes and a more realistic rendering of the uh, the tower in the context. So bringing it back to a more classic building, uh, classic pro architectural project, I guess. Um, this is uh, this project is a large rural estate project. In fact, Matt here <laughs> worked with us on on, on this project with, as the as the QS. It's great to see you up here. <laughs> Um, um, when we were approached to do this project, the client sort of visited us um, a couple of times before engaging us. And um, eventually when, when he engaged us, it was fairly tentative. Um, and, and, and I realised later on that as you can see, he had sort of gone through the process with uh, a couple of other architects before. Um, uh, like the exchange back in Sydney was uh, as one might expect in any other kind of uh, commission. You're given a program list of areas and um, things that you might need to accommodate uh, within the project and uh, some images of projects that they like and um, sharing that with you. When um, we came up to the site, what was really um, fascinating for me was that He'd already spent about two years planting four-fifths of the site um, uh, with trees. And it was a massive endeavour because there, was a, there were so many people on site clearing out um, the, the landscape, preparing it um, for... The, the, the site had a lot of camphor laurels, which really was suffocating any of the nat native vegetation to really take hold. So a lot of the um, hard work was in preparing uh, the land. So. Uh, the native um, hardwood um, vegetations and other ve rainforest vegetations can, can be put in. So, um, so it, it, it's a forestry project. So he had spent quite a bit of time and money investing into this. It started off because he, um, he originally went up to, him and his wife went up to commission a bed for themselves with this furniture designer, Tony Kenway. I'm not sure whether you guys, any of you have heard of him. Um, but they got into a discussion of, um, of uh, really the shortage of, of hardwoods 
that are starting to emerge in the country because all the old um, building stocks um, that the hardwoods um, we use from are running out and no one is planting them anymore. <laughs> um, he made, he made, this is the uh, Tony with his um, industry. So you can see here the previous as it states now and, and what it might look like in the future. So uh, spending time on site, really the, the question that I just asked was, well, how long do these trees take to grow? And he said, well, well you know, the quick ones are about 50 years and, and the really good ones are about 300 years. And I'm looking at him and he's got kids with kids. <laughs> and he sort of penny dropped that really he's starting something he's actually not going to see in his own lifetime. <laughs> And I think we, you know, this vision of doing something that sort of goes beyond one's lifetime started to uh, take hold for both the client and us as something that's fairly unique. And, and so suddenly, just through, I guess, that observation, uh, the dialogue shifted. We still have all those um, everyday requirements of the brief, but overlaid into that was um, a sense that the project can have a broader set of meaning and value to, to him personally. Um, and so quickly the discussions really happened about the nature of that site, where it is geologically and historically in the context. You know, I was really fascinated to see that the volcanic caldera which shapes that region, it's, it's so massive, it's crazy. I mean, you can see Byron Bay there, you can hardly see the centre of the crater. If you zoom out on Google Earth, you can see that ring which is reaching out. You can kind of, and it, that starts to sort of ponder why the fertile nature of the ground, the topography that gives its aesthetic qualities, the kind of social uh, dimensions that might have emerged through that kind of geological sort of condition as well. Um, and we talked a lot about how, um, about ruins, about forms in um, nature, um, just to start to, uh, start to sort of um, find common grounds about how we might approach the project. Um, it was a project that's been um, probably the most deeply uh, collaborative project with a client, very heavily involved in all ideas in the project. So this is a, a rendering of um, what we imagine the future site will be. So the first two projects that have been complete are two sheds which sit um, on, the, uh, on the rim um, between the uh, domestic landscape, uh, which is fairly cleared landscape, against the future forest. And there were um, important projects because the lines in those landscape and the way it shapes um, shapes and sets the relationship between what's the private domain and the forest uh, really starts to structure how the whole site might evolve. So we're really careful in thinking about um, in essence its role in, in, in structuring the site. The two sheds have a, a, have a kind of a conceptual pair. One is um, uh, the shed one is like a is like a, a structure which sort of straddles the wall and cups, cups sort of a void. The other one is a cantilever from the back of the ground and holding a solid object. So, um, but they're linked by a wall that joins them. The shed one here, you can see the wall um, and the various makeup. There's a small uh, linear workshed, uh, workshop section at the back, a uh, series of operable door sets. 
um, which, uh, um, which really has to leave within a, um, a strong sort of concrete enclosure. So the image from back of Shed 1, um, its relationship to the distant view um, and, the, and, the, and the forest that will emerge, um, just to sort of give you some perspective of the scale of uh, the landscape. Uh, eventually the trees will grow uh, to pretty much as high as what you can see on that ridge line. So there'll be a long wall of trees, um, roughly 30 metres tall, that wrap. So the, the, the private domain eventually will be uh, far more defined by the relationship between what's been left as the private domain and, and, the, and, the, and the forest um, over and above this more distant views that's um, there now. So the structures kind of are sitting there um, in a different relationship to how it will be in the future. Um, so you can see here with all the doors open, um, the walls um, are, are, as I keep, uh, as I said before, really um, site structuring devices. So they're uh, they're a continuation of this delineation device at the bottom edge of the site, and with the enclosure really being formed by these super concrete structures. See the relationship there. So a lot of this, a lot of the discussion during the design process was also about what the thing might look like if it was a ruin, <laughs> and and also um, and as part of that, parallel to that conversation was really how things um, patina and hopefully um, sort of grow uh, in value rather than sort of losing some of the essence as time goes by. So purposely, all the um, structures such as the concrete and the stonework is conceived to really, um, it, it will grey out, uh, the stones will go black, the concrete will weather, but the crisp details that are set within the glass and the stainless are sort of offsets to really um, um, accentuate uh, the, the, the primary um, structure against the things that are there for habitation. See the, the wall threading through the structure. One of the um, interesting debates we had early on, because of the site relationship, we were really keen to um, anchor the project. Um, and, um, but there was um, certain views in, from the team um, because the general approach to build in this region is more lightweight, um, off the ground, let it ventilate, etc. And um, we felt that the thermal mass of the ground can provide some cooling and can, uh, there could be a different model to approach sort of building in this um, context. We really didn't have, we, we tried to get advice from various people on, on what, um, how effective or what, what that um, performance could be, but it was very hard to um, get that advice. And we were really, really happy to say after doing some post-occupancy analysis, you can, the light, uh, the thinner line is the outside temperature. So it straddles sort of everything from you know, 19 degrees to 34 degrees. The internal temperature remains pretty flat between roughly sort of 20, 23 degrees to 26 degrees. So it does a huge amount of, you have a diurnal difference and a weekly difference that might go you know, 14 degrees, which is sort of um, temperate averaged out to a very consistent, um, comfortable temperature. 
And that's one of the real pleasures of the building is when you actually go on a hot day within, as soon as you sort of come under that structure, um, it's, it's, it's cool. <laughs> it's thermally cool. Um, and, um, and also partly because of that and partly because of the thermal mass, it's also um, quieter. So the acoustic quality of the space really helps settle you in that space and allows you to appreciate um, other things that are around you. The views out, and this is uh, the view back towards um, the the open um, paddock area uh, to the west. Views from the back of the shed, on the front, and this probably gives you a better idea of um, the scale relationship. So at the moment, it, it um, from certain points it has a quite a commanding. Um, uh, scale um, but uh, eventually when the when the forest comes up um, it will be a fairly small structure relative to everything around it. The second shed um, which is uh, the beams are 20 meters in length about nine meters in cantilever and there's a um, they uh, they're supported off one column structure, column line, and the backspan is anchored back into the ground. So you can see that relationship between the topography, uh, the, the beam lines. It's a storage shed, so there was no um, full enclosure required, but a security enclosure for the shed. The security enclosure is conceived so when it opens, it can really fully open. Um, so the door sets were a big, big part of the design. Um, we were fortunate to find a door supplier who were willing to take up the challenge. And um, these ones on the end um, have that nine meter cantilever pivoting off one pivot point and driven out of a motor. Uh, the ones to the north are a series of gas strut doors um, to the north. So this is uh, its expression as a closed thing and as an open structure. Internally, um, as it opens, you know, when it's shut, you just get a sliver of the sky, and then when it opens, it frames that horizon. So internally, you can see that. Um, again, this hovering roof with the enclosure around you, and eventually, uh, ferns and vegetations will be to the, to the right here. See that sectional relationship? There. And these are the doors. So those two structures uh, uh, now kind of sit quietly, almost sort of waiting for the trees to grow <laughs> um, in its own unhurried path. And uh, we're working on other structures uh, on that side uh, at the moment. Thank you.